Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your hosts of that startup show, Ray Johnston and Benjamin Law. Welcome to That Startup Show. I'm Ray Johnston and please, some pity applause for my co-host, Benjamin Law. It needs to be sadder. It needs to be sadder. <laughs> what is the future for democracy? What is the present for democracy? Is Australia actually a functional democracy or is the Prime Minister decided by whoever faceless government backbenchers hate the least this week? <laughs> You know, we were doing fine for 80,000 years, just putting it out there. So is direct democracy the future? Are we all going to be voting on every decision just with an app? Or will that lead to an entire world of Bodie McVote faces? In fact, there has been a poll and the new name for direct democracy is Vody McVote face. Can we trust the results of this poll? Has it been hacked by Russians or is it just plain fake news? Sounds like somebody's being a Haiti McHate face. You need to stop that. <laughs> well, by the end of the show, we might have a better way forward. As we look at the world of civic tech, we're talking government, social enterprises and service deliveries. And Uber. Ah, yes. Everyone's always looking for the next Uber, which is why my new app is going to tell you how long it is until the next Uber is built. <laughs> There's one being launched in three minutes. It really is the Uber of Ubers. That's how I pitched it. Yeah, all, all the VCs literally exploded. But technology does have the power to reach out, break down boundaries and include more people in society and decision-making. By that, I assume you mean the Russian troll farms that until recently had been cruelly shut out of the US electoral process. Exactly. By the way, am I the only one who thinks a Russian troll farm sounds kind of cute? I picture them a bit like wombies. Like, trust me, if this was the early 90s, the Children's TV Foundation would have been all over that. Trolls. It would have been the suite of subversion of the will of the people since Papa Smurf seized control of Smurfland. Yes, and Ray, our show is a direct democracy. I mean, a voting McVote face. So if you want to have your voice heard, tweet us at... TSU show or use the hashtag that startup show. Remember, we work in the media, so we have no original ideas or moral compass. We are putty in your hands. This is why we're launching our own party, that startup party. We're going to be different from all the other parties, though. That's right. Under my leadership, we won't all be about navel gazing and leadership spills. We'll be focused on the needs of you, the people. What do you mean, your leadership? Come on, Ray, I don't think this country is ready for yet another female PM. <laughs> so this show is all about making society better, greasing the wheels of government and not in a systemic kickbacks way. Although, who knows? Someone could be pitching a micropayment app for bribing your local member in real time. Ray, I can tell you no one is pitching that because that app would have already been funded a thousand times over by lobbyists from New South Wales. That is correct. But before I rush off to launch that idea, it's time to meet our incredible guests. Our first guest is the Australian Bureau Chief for the New York Times, having previously been posted in Mexico City and Baghdad. So please, tell him how bad your commute was this morning. He's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for international reporting and has covered military recruiting, New York City government and New Jersey politics. 
politics. And now he's covering Australia. God help him. Please welcome the legendary Damien Kaye. Our second guest won a host of awards over the course of her journalism career. She was Journalist of the Year at the Multicultural and Indigenous Media Awards in 2015. She was Community Broadcaster of the Year at Deadly Awards in 2012 and has received a commendation for excellence in journalism from the World Indigenous Television Broadcasters Network. She's currently the host of NITV News. Please welcome the very deadly Natalie Armat. So, so, panel, we saw the role that social media played in enabling the Arab Spring and we've since seen it deployed in a host of other political directions uh, from trolling (laughs) to hashtag MeToo. Do you feel that technology is necessarily making democracy stronger, Damien? Well, I think it's probably making democracy both stronger and weaker. Mm-hmm. It's got the ability to connect people that wouldn't otherwise be connected, to mobilize things that are good or bad. But to some degree, all it does is amplify who we are, right? Okay. So I kind of feel like it's just a megaphone for our best and worst tendencies. For what's already there. Deep inside us. What about you, Natalie? <laughs> what's your take? Well, I think, especially working in the area of Indigenous affairs, as as I do, we really have seen Indigenous people who in this country haven't had a voice. Technology and social media has very much given uh, people a platform. It's democratised access. Absolutely. And we are seeing it being used also for online activism, where once upon a time, for 80 years, we've had a really strong, proud uh, history of protest in Aboriginal mm-hmm. Australia, but now we're seeing that move online as well. Not to say we don't like a good uh, hit the streets protest as well, but we're sort of seeing a lot of movements within Indigenous Australia where they're using uh, social media mm. to get the message out there. And you know, the change the date is a perfect example. So we're seeing gatekeepers being knocked down for better. Or for worse. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we're going to kick off with a game that we would like to play. It's called Rankity Rank. It's pretty rank. (laughs) So you'll get three options to rank in order from highest to lowest. But first we need to test our buzzers. Yes, that's working (laughs) fine, Natalie. Oh, hello. Excellent. Okay, so jump in. It is multiple choice. There are no wrong answers. Well, they actually are wrong There are wrong answers. (laughs) But first, who has the most followers on Twitter? Jump in. Donald Trump, Lady Gaga or Mark Zuckerberg? I'm going to have to say Donald Trump. (gasps) That's not actually right. The answer is Lady Gaga, who's my personal president. And then Trump, <laughs> and then the Zuck. Mark Zuckerberg has 447,000 followers despite having only tweeted 19 times. And 18 of them were, how dumb is tweeting? I just don't get it. Oh, gosh. All right, so next up, who has the highest score on the Index of Economic Freedom according to the Heritage Foundation and the Wall Street Journal? Is it Australia... Singapore or Finland? Oh, I'm just going to take a guess. 
Ah, uh, Finland? Ooh, you would think so, but it's Singapore, then Australia, then Finland. That's so what incorrect. I meant. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing it in reverse. Ranking the other way around. Yeah. Uh, Singapore is actually second in the rankings overall. Australia comes in fifth and Finland is 26th. And Finland gave us the game Angry Birds, so I suppose the birds were angry because they were... Anarcho capitalists or, or socialist something? utopians. Yeah. Now, <laughs> next round, according to Reporters Without Borders, which country has the highest score on the Press Freedom Index? Highest score. Mm. Is it Burkina Faso, Ghana, or the United States? I don't believe it's the United States, I would say, but I'm going to go with Ghana. The correct answer is Ghana. <laughs> for both Damien and Ghana. <laughs> it's Ghana first, then Burkina Faso, and then it's the good old US of A. Although, in defence of the US, you are free to report any good news on Donald Trump that you find, like when he... Um, there was the time... <laughs> no, I, I got nothing. It's OK. It's OK. Look, our Prime Ministers are usually in power for long enough for your two-minute noodles to soften, but which of these leaders has been in power the longest? Is it Vladimir Putin from Russia, Angela Merkel from Germany and Paul Beyer from Cameroon? <laughs> I'm going to go with Cameroon just Cameroon. because... Cameroon! You are I've correct! So, yes! Clearly I've been ousted any time. Yes. I don't know why that required a wiggle, but it did. <laughs> you got it right. So the correct order is Cameroon's buyer at 43 years, then Russia's Putin at 19 years, that's both as PM and as president, and then Germany's Merkel at 12 years. Paul Beyer is now 85 years old. But the only leadership spills he has to worry about are those little things of custard getting on his cardigan. Oh, <laughs> God bless dictatorships. Now, according to Crunchbase... Which civic tech company has raised the most amount of money? Change.org, My Society, or a startup called Aunt Bertha? I'm going to go with Aunt Bertha just because of yeah, the name. I know. <laughs> I've never heard of them, but I love the name. The correct order is Change.org at $72 million, Aunt Bertha at $10 million, My Society at $575,000, and Aunt Bertha is probably my favourite name for a startup as well. I just love a company that sounds like it would force feed you coleslaw at a family barbecue. <laughs> and finally, who got the most votes in the 2003 California recall election for governor? That was won by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Was it Hustler magazine publisher Larry Flint, actor Gary Coleman from Different Strokes, or adult movie star Mary Carey? I'm going to go with Gary Coleman. No. No. Not close, not close. <laughs> close. That's a quite a mix of people there. Larry know. Flint <laughs> got yeah. the most votes, Laza. followed by, yeah, Lazza, followed by Gazza, Gary Laza. Coleman, <laughs> and then Mazza, Mary Carey. Love a good Maz. <laughs> yeah. But this field, it sounds like a hypothetical scenario with the objective being, describe a situation where I'd be relieved to hear the guy from Kindergarten Cop won the election. <laughs> Now, let's have a chat between us about tech, democracy and startups. So, Natalie, 
In Australia, we vote by going into a small cardboard box with an HB pencil in one hand and a sausage, a democracy sausage, in the other. But this is actually how we vote in 2018. We're living in the world of tech. Is this how we should still be voting? Not at all. Like, the last time I was at school, I was there with the... HB pencil and things have moved on <laughs> so much. I just think we do so much now on our devices. You know, we can order food, we can book plane tickets, yet when it comes to, you know, every four years, we have to go down the local school and, uh, and so... But do we trust can't... a government that can't necessarily roll out a census enough <laughs> in order to make sure that an election electronically will work? Well, I think, you know, surely... It's sort You'd of one of those. So. You would hope so. You would hope so. But yeah, fair enough. The, the census and there have been a few epic uh, government fails. Yeah. So yes, perhaps we need to look at who's, you know, running the show first. But it is sort of mind-boggling to think in this day and age mm. that yeah, we're still doing the old-fashioned mm. pencil and paper and uh, you know, and then the you know the, the poor people that have to stay back there. Counting. Counting. Oh, manually. 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 through the... When we've got all of this technology, it's just, Absolutely. yeah, so I'm sure there is a better way. So, Damien, what does an ideal 21st century voting system look like? Are there countries out there that are doing it right and steps our government can take, can be learning from them? Yeah, I don't know if there are countries that are doing it right. I mean, I'm surprised <laughs> Facebook hasn't already told us all who we're going to vote for anyway. So, um, maybe this is the system. Um, <laughs> No, but I do think, I mean, one of the huge problems in democracy, right, is this gap between what we can do with the speed with which we can do it on our devices and the way that government works. Like, there's this enormous lag in the efficiency of the things that we carry in our pockets and the efficiency of government. And whether it's still in paper or whether it's digital or no matter what it is, you know, government has to figure out some way to close that gap or else all you're going to do is just see more and more apathy and more and more people who are... The only voting they do is going to be hitting a like button. Um, Mm. And that's basically what we're kind of moving towards. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about the idea that sometimes rollouts of new technology can be stuffed up, but of course, new technologies can also be susceptible to hacking, for instance. So have we seen examples of this overseas where that has happened, where people have tried to roll out new technologies and democracy has been undermined as a result? Well, I can think of a country where there have been some challenges to democracy for yeah. foreign powers. Um, <laughs> I, think. Uh, I think it's called the United States. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, it's clear that governments have been trying to influence, you know, how people vote for a long time. And, you know, voting, anything that's networked is vulnerable. And so, you know, one of the things you have to figure out is, is it a closed system um, or does it, can it be something that's connected to the Internet? I mean, it's an open platform that's meant to be open. So it's very hard to somehow secure it. Um, but, you know, it's not just countries that are trying to influence our votes. It's, you know, interest groups and all kinds of other different things, too. And so it's not just about the ballot box, right, if there is a ballot box. It's also about what we read and what we consume. Mm, yeah. And we all need to be savvier, I think, about kind of what we do. I mean, Natalie pointed out the fact that the fact that we go into a cardboard ballot box here in Australia with a pencil isn't necessarily the most convenient thing. And I know that in America, for instance, these issues are compounded by the fact that some voters are actively disenfranchised because of the system of going out on a certain day. Does America especially need to update their system and what might that look like? Absolutely. I mean, the idea that the United States voting system requires you to be out of work on a Tuesday mm-hmm. and that's the only time you can vote for a lot of people. Um, a lot many of people of us... can't take, off, exactly. take work off that exactly. day. And, you know, the, every system that we have is decided by people who have power and have a decision how to structure that system. Structures create and 
exacerbate power dynamics in any place. And so the United States has created a system where a lot of people have an interest in limiting who gets to vote and in making it difficult. And so, you know, at some point, you have to hope that the pendulum swings to the other side where people say, hey, let's make this as easy as possible and open the doors as wide as we can. Um, I don't know if technology will help or hurt that, but mm-hmm. it's definitely something. Do we turn to blockchain to for something like that? <laughs> you know, like I sometimes, I covered the internet in, like, in the dot-com boom in San Francisco in the early 90s, and I sometimes go back to those early chat rooms mm-hmm. and sort of the, like, the ideal of what digital technology could bring. At that point was like civil conversation, passion, open to dialogue and discussion, and I keep wondering when or if we can ever get back to it. Mm-hmm. Now, social media. It's a part of democracy now, whether we like it or not, and it's basically unregulated. You've got fake news, you've got echo chambers and direct communication between candidates and the public, which is unprecedented. Should tech companies or governments address this, and will they? I mean, the the problem, right, is that the tech companies have created these black boxes Mm. that don't really allow us to understand how they're engineering the way we consume media and the way we consume our cultures. And so government is the only force that can create transparency and that can make companies open up the process. And so at some point, people need to mobilize and request the governments do that. And at some point, hopefully, you'll have leaders that actually understand technology better than the leaders we have now. (laughs) Um, But again, that may be generations away, unfortunately. Is that how you feel as well, Natalie? Yeah, I think accountability is really big when it comes to social media. Whose responsibility that is, governments or the tech companies? Mm. I think, you know, I think both of them have a role to play there. And I think something else that could be done is, I guess, more um, social media literacy training, if you like. Because we as journalists, we see something on Twitter, an article being circulated, and, and we have the tools to to work out if that's... Uh, we know the signs to look for with yeah. fake news. We seek a second source. But I think uh, in the social media world, for the, the average punter at home where there is information overload, you know there could be more done to improve social media literacy so people can more easily recognise that fake news when it pops up on their timeline. Mm. Now, Liz, let's stay with you. The world that we live in does have borders, uh, in some cases a very heavily enforced borders, but some of these companies that exist, I mean, in the tech world, we don't have borders. Those borders are pretty porous, and now some of these companies are effectively global economic powerhouses in their own right. I imagine their GDP exceeds a lot of countries themselves. (laughs) So what ability do governments and citizens have in ensuring that those companies are made accountable? Do you think that exists, that facility exists? That is a big, big question. I'm not quite sure, yeah. Yeah, where do we start? That's right. (laughs) Do we need to be lobbying the governments to be more accountable? Is this something that we need to do as citizens to say, hey, can you please be paying some attention to this because it's making an impact? Absolutely. I think it is up to us. I don't think government's going to, you know, pick up the the, the mantle and run with it on this. So I do think it is on on us to be demanding that our governments hold these these big companies accountable and that we're demanding transparency. I, mean, I think I wonder if sometimes we romanticise technology's role in the democratic project because mm. um, these are essentially companies that, at the end of the day, are for-profit companies that are either mining our data for advertising <laughs> or other things. 
Is that an uneasy marriage? Like, do we kind of look at technology and its role in advancing democracy with rose-coloured glasses? I think we have and we kind of always have, right? You think about the auto industry. They told us, we're going to make your cities livable. It's going to be glorious. We're just going to ride around in leisure. And how did that turn out? You know, like, history has a tendency to sort of over-romanticise what's new backed with company money and power to tell you that this is good. And so enforcing accountability for anything new is always a challenge, Mm. whether it's a national issue or an international issue. I think we want the new thing to be good as well. We want to look at these things and go, this is the thing that's going to save us. This is the thing that's going to make everything better. So, yeah, we are a bit blind to its faults. And there's, there's there's something wonderful about that. I mean, new things can't exist if people aren't optimistic about what they can do. And so creativity and innovation is based on our, like, human need for novelty and for newness and for excitement. And so, you know, you just have to figure out how to manage it once it gets beyond that embryonic phase and turns into a Frankenstein. (laughs) So managing that Frankenstein, do you think that that's the job of startups now, to disrupt that tech, you know, disrupt those tech superpowers and, and even, like, empower the local communities as well? Well, one of the things you see in Silicon Valley, right, is the children of a lot of the people who built some of this stuff don't have access to a lot of the technology that they've been building. And so you do have, I think, a kind of backlash even inside the tech movement. It's basically saying, hey, wait a second, maybe we are the ones that have to take responsibility for this. And, Mm. you know, I personally know people who have started things and had second thoughts about what they did and then figured out some way to adjust. And the good news is there's a belief in being able to change things. It's it's, It's an open system and the internet will tell you information wants to be free. And so maybe some of the same smart people who built the things that cause problems will also find solutions, you know, if they focus on that and not delivering food, you know, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> Do either of you worry about the opposite interaction where governments and countries can actually shape tech companies sometimes for the worse? I'm thinking, obviously, of, say, Google and China. He's a tech company wanting to go into a country, a tech company that wants to be benevolent in their own way, and yet might have to adhere to the standards of a a communist, you know, country that has its own ideas of what free speech should look like. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a serious problem too. I mean, you know, this is a game of power, right? And certain Mm -hmm. countries can can hold power uh, and hold technology to account. I mean, I'm more concerned about the way that governments use this technology for surveillance, for all kinds of things that limit speech and limit freedom. And so, you know, sometimes you build something, you don't quite know how it's going to be used. And so I'm more concerned about how it might be deployed than I am Mm. about companies having to adjust to fit into those systems. And finally, let's end with you, Natalie. Let's end with a note of optimism as well, because we started talking about the ways that technology and social media can empower people who might be living remotely, for instance, entire communities. What are some kind of concrete ways that you've seen that happen? Oh, gosh. Well, as I, as I mentioned, you know, we are seeing um, a lot of Indigenous people across the country. And so now we can hear voice. Obviously, there are some very remote places that still don't have access to technology. But compared with how, you know, we've been up till now, people can stay on country and be, you know, we can hear their voices here in the capital cities. Um, and that's, you know, amazing. And that's so, a relatively new thing. Yeah. It is, absolutely. And I just love the whole, you know, we are the oldest living culture 
the oldest living people on the planet, yet using this latest mm. uh, technology to help record those stories. So that's been a real positive thing. And just there are so many ways that the Indigenous community have mm. embraced tech, from rangers who are using it to care for country, for children in classrooms, for people with health problems who can see a specialist yeah. in the city. So there have been lots of great ways that technology has helped within the Indigenous community, and that's just, I'm sure it's helping other subsections of the community too. So as I say, I, I'm thinking that certainly the, the positives that technology has has brought a far outweigh mm. the negatives and really exciting to think how that's going to bring communities together as we get more and more ideas and, and start-ups doing their thing. That gives me hope. <laughs> and I can just scroll through my Instagram feed and find amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mm. designers and they're Absolutely. making jewellery and, so and, art centers and using all. culture Absolutely. to create businesses from wherever they are. That's right. Great. So it doesn't, you know, the, traditionally people did have to kind of move away for education yep. or, for, or for jobs. Now they can stay strong in culture, strong on country, uh, but still be connected mm. to Sydney, Melbourne, wherever. Brilliant. Now, thank you, Natalie, and thank you, Damien. Wonderful panel, Natalie Armat. And that is all we have time for. Please and Damien Cave. Next time, we're going to look at the Internet of Things and ghost tech. I can't guarantee I won't spend the whole show shouting about not crossing the streams. See you then, entrepreneurs. Oh